Marcella by Mrs. Humphrey Ward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 2 Recorded by Cheryl Martin Friendship and love are humanizing things, and by her fourteenth year Marcella was no longer a clever little imp, but a fast-maturing and, in some ways, remarkable girl, with much of the woman in her already. She had begun even to feel an interest in her dress, to speculate occasionally on her appearance. At the fourth breaking-up party after her arrival at Cliff House, Marcella, who had usually figured on these occasions in a linsey-woolsey high to the throat, amid the frilled and sashed splendors of her companions, found lying on her bed, when she went up with the others to dress, a plain white muslin dress with blue ribbons. It was the gift of old Mademoiselle Renier, who affectionately wished her queer, neglected favorite to look well. Marcella examined it and fingered it with an excited mixture of feelings. First of all, there was the sore and swelling bitterness that she should owe such things to the kindness of the French governess, whereas finery for the occasion had been freely sent to all the other girls from home. She very nearly turned her back upon the bed and its pretty burden, but then the mere snowy whiteness of the muslin and freshness of the ribbons and the burning curiosity to see herself decked therein overcame a nature which, in the midst of its penury, had been always really possessed by a more than common hunger for sensuous beauty and seemliness. Marcella wore it, was stormily happy in it, and kissed Mademoiselle Rainier for it at night with an effusion, nay, some tears, which no one at Cliff House had ever witnessed in her before except with the accompaniments of rage and fury. A little later her father came to see her, the first and only visit he paid to her at school. Marcella, to whom he was by now almost a stranger, received him demurely, making no confidences, and took him over the house and gardens. When he was about to leave her, a sudden upswell of paternal sentiment made him ask her if she was happy and if she wanted anything. "'Yes,' said Marcella, her large eyes gleaming. "'Tell Mama I want a fringe. Every other girl in the school has got one.' And she pointed disdainfully to her plainly parted hair. Her father, astonished by her unexpected vehemence, put up his eyeglasses and studied the child's appearance. Three days later, by her mother's permission, Marcella was taken to the hairdresser at Marswell by Mademoiselle Renier, returned in all the glories of her fringe, and, in acknowledgment thereof, wrote her mother a letter which for the first time had something else than formal news in it. Meanwhile, new destinies were preparing for her. For a variety of small reasons, Mr. Boyce, who had never yet troubled himself about the matter from a distance, was not, upon personal inspection, very favorably struck with his daughter's surroundings. His wife remarked shortly, when he complained to her, that Marcella seemed to her as well off as the daughter of persons of their means could expect to be. But Mr. Boyce stuck to his point. He had just learnt that Harold, the only son of his widowed brother Robert, of Mellor Park, had recently developed a deadly disease, which might be long, but must in the end be sure. If the young man died and he outlived Robert, Mellor Park would be his. 
they would and must return, in spite of certain obstacles, to their natural rank in society, and Marcella must, of course, be produced as his daughter and heiress. When his wife repulsed him, he went to his eldest sister, an old maid with a small income of her own, who happened to be staying with them and was the only member of his family with whom he was now on terms. She was struck with his remarks, which bore on family pride, a commodity not always to be reckoned on in the voices, but which she herself possessed in abundance. And when he paused, she slowly said that if an ideal school of another type could be found for Marcella, she would be responsible for what it might cost over and above the present arrangement. Marcella's manners were certainly rough. It was difficult to say what she was learning or with whom she was associating. Accomplishments she appeared to have none. Something should certainly be done for her, considering the family contingencies. But being a strong evangelical, the aunt stipulated for religious influences and said she would write to a friend. The result was that a month or two later, Marcella, now close on her fourteenth birthday, was transferred from Cliff House to the charge of a lady who managed a small but much sought-after school for young ladies at Salisbury, a watering place on the East Coast. But when, in the course of reminiscence, Marcella found herself once more at Salisbury, memory began to halt and wander, to choose another tone and method. At Salisbury, the rough surroundings and primitive teaching of Cliff House, together with her own burning sense of inferiority and disadvantage, had troubled her no more. She was well taught there, and developed quickly from the troublesome child into the young lady duly broken in to all social proprieties. But it was not her lessons or her dancing masters that she remembered. She had made for herself agitations at Cliff House, but what were they as compared to the agitations of Soulsby? Life there had been one long, worthish romance in which there were few incidents, only feelings, which were themselves events. It contained humiliations and pleasures, but they had been all matters of spiritual relation, connected with one figure only, the figure of her schoolmistress, Miss Pemberton, and with one emotion only, a passion an adoration, akin to that she had lavished on the Ellertons, but now much more expressive and mature. A tall, slender woman with brown, gray besprinkled hair falling in light curls after the fashion of her grandmother's on either cheek, and braided into a classic knot behind. The face of a saint, an enthusiast, eyes overflowing with feeling above a thin, firm mouth. The mouth of the obstinate saint, yet sweet also. This delicate, significant picture was stamped on Marcella's heart. What tremors of fear and joy could she not remember in connection with it? What night vigils when a tired girl kept herself through long hours awake, that she might see at last the door open, and a figure with a night lamp standing an instant in the doorway? For Miss Pemberton, who slept little and read late, never went to rest without softly going the rounds of her pupils' rooms. What storms of contest, mainly provoked by Marcella for the sake of the emotions, first of combat, then of reconciliation to which they led! What a strange development on the pupils' side of a certain histrionic gift, a turn for imaginative intrigue, for endless small contrivances such as might rouse or heighten 
the recurrent excitements of feeling. What agitated moments of religious talk, what golden days in the holidays, when long-looked-for letters arrived full of religious admonition, letters which were carried about and wept over till they felt pieces under the stress of such a worship, what terrors and agonies of a stimulated conscience, what remorse for sins committed at school, what zeal to confess them in letters of a passionate eloquence, and what indifference, meanwhile, to anything of the same sort that might have happened at home. Strange faculty that women have for thus lavishing their heart's blood from their very cradles. Marcella could hardly look back now, in the quiet of thought, to her five years with Miss Pemberton without a shiver of agitation. Yet now she never saw her. It was two years since they parted. The school was broken up. Her idol had gone to India to join a widowed brother. It was all over, forever. Those precious letters had worn themselves away. So, too, had Marcella's religious feelings. She was once more another being. But these two years since she had said goodbye to Soulsby in her school days, once set thinking of bygones by the stimulus of Mellor and its novelty, Marcella must needs think, too, of her London life, of all that it had opened to her and meant for her. Fresh agitations, fresh passions, but this time impersonal, passions of the mind and sympathies. At the time she left Soulsby, her father and mother were abroad, and it was apparently not convenient that she should join them. Marcella, looking back, could not remember that she had ever much desired at home. No doubt she had been often moody and tiresome in the holidays, but she suspected, nay, was certain, that there had been other and more permanent reasons why her parents felt her presence with them a burden. At any rate, when the moment came for her to leave Miss Pemberton, her mother wrote from abroad that, as Marcella had of late shown a decided aptitude both for music and painting, it would be well that she should cultivate both gifts for a while more seriously than would be possible at home. Mrs. Boyce had made inquiries, and is quite willing that her daughter should go, for a time, to a lady whose address she enclosed, and to whom she herself had written, a lady who received girl students working at the South Kensington art classes. So began an experience, as novel as it was strenuous. Marcella soon developed all the airs of independence and all the jargon of two professions. Working with consuming energy and ambition, she pushed her gifts so far as to become at least a very intelligent, eager, and confident critic of the art of other people, which is much. But though art stirred and trained her, gave her new horizons and new standards, it was not in art that she found ultimately the chief excitement and motive power of her new life. Not in art, but in the birth of social and philanthropic ardor, the sense of a hitherto unsuspected social power. One of her girlfriends and fellow students had two brothers in London, both at work at South Kensington and living not far from their sister. The three were orphans. They sprang from a nervous artistic stock, and Marcella had never before come near anyone capable of crowding so much living into the twenty-four hours. The two brothers, both of them skillful and artistic designers in different lines, and hard at work all day, were members of a rising socialistic society, 
and spent their evenings almost entirely on various forms of social effort and socialist propaganda. They seemed to Marcella's young eyes absolutely sincere and quite unworldly. They lived as workmen, and both the luxuries and the charities of the rich were equally odious to them. That there could be any right in private property or private wealth had become incredible to them. Their minds were full of lurid images or resentments drawn from the existing state of London, and though one was humorous and handsome, the other, short, sickly, and pedantic, neither could discuss the socialist idea without passion, nor hear it attacked without anger, and in milder measure their sister, who possessed more artistic gift than either of them, was like unto them. Marcella saw much of these three persons, and something of their friends. She went with them to socialist lectures, or to the public evenings of the Venture Society, to which the brothers belonged. Edie, the sister, assaulted the imagination of her friend, made her read the books of a certain eminent poet and artist, once the poet of love and dreamland, the idle singer of an empty day, now seer and prophet, the herald of an age to come, in which none shall possess, though all shall enjoy. The brothers, more ambitious, attacked her through the reason, brought her popular translations and selections from Marx and LaSalle, together with each venturous pamphlet and essay as it appeared. They flattered her with technical talk. They were full of the importance of women to the new doctrine and the new era. The handsome brother was certainly in love with her, the other, probably. Marcella was not in love with either of them, but she was deeply interested in all three, and for the sickly brother she felt at that time a profound admiration, nay, reverence, which influenced her vitally at a critical moment of life. Blessed are the poor, woe unto you, rich men. These were the only articles of his scanty creed, but they were held with a fervor and acted upon with a conviction which our modern religion seldom commands. His influence made Marcella a rent collector under a lady friend of his in the East End. Because of it, she worked herself beyond her strength in a joint attempt made by some members of the Venturous Society to organize a tailoress's union, and, to please him, she read articles and blue books on sweating and overcrowding. It was all very moving and very dramatic. So, too, was the persuasion Marcella divined in her friends, that she was destined in time, with work and experience, to great things and high place in the movement. The wholly unexpected news of Mr. Boyce's accession to Mellor had very various effects upon this little band of comrades. It revived in Marcella ambitions, instincts and tastes wholly different from those of her companions, but natural to her by temperament and inheritance. The elder brother, Anthony Craven, always melancholy and suspicious, divined her immediately. "'How glad you are to be done with Bohemia,' he said to her ironically one day, when he had just discovered her with the photographs of Melor about her. "'And how rapidly it works!' "'What works?' she asked him angrily. The poison of possession, and what a mean end it puts to things. A week ago you were all given to causes not your own. Now how long will it take you to think of us as poor fanatics, and to be ashamed you ever knew us? 
"'You mean to say that I am a mean hypocrite?' she cried. "'Do you think that because I delight in, in pretty things and old associations "'I must give up all my convictions? "'Shall I find no poor at Mellor, no work to do? "'It is unkind, unfair. "'It is the way all reform breaks down, through mutual distrust.' He looked at her with a cold smile in his dark, sunken eyes, and she turned from him indignantly. When they bade her good-bye at the station, she begged them to write to her. "'No, no,' said Louis, the handsome younger brother. "'If ever you want us, we are there. "'If you write, we will answer, "'but you won't need to think about us yet a while. "'Good-bye.' And he pressed her hand with a smile. The good fellow had put all his own dreams and hopes out of sight with a firm hand since the arrival of her great news. Indeed, Marcella realized in the mall that she was renounced. Louis and Edith spoke with affection and regret. As to Anthony, from the moment that he set eyes upon the maid sent to escort her to Mellor, and the first-class ticket that had been purchased for her, Marcella perfectly understood that she had become to him as an enemy. "'They shall see. I will show them,' she said to herself with angry energy as the train whirled her away. And her sense of their unwarrantable injustice kept her tense and silent, till she was roused to a childish and passionate pleasure by a first sight of the wide lawns and time-stained front of Mellor. Of such elements, such memories of persons, things, and events, was Marcella's reverie by the window made up. One thing, however, which clearly, this report of it has not explained, is that spirit of energetic discontent with her past in which she had entered on her musings. Why such soreness of spirit? Her childhood had been pinched and loveless. But, after all, it could well bear comparison with that of many another child of impoverished parents. There had been compensations all through, and were not the great passion of her Soulsby days, together with the interest and novelty of her London experience, enough to give zest and glow to the whole retrospect? Ah, but it will be observed that in this sketch of Marcella's school days nothing has been said of Marcella's holidays. In this omission the narrative has but followed the hasty, half-conscious gaps and slurs of the girl's own thoughts. For Marcella never thought of those holidays and all that was connected with them, in detail, if she could possibly avoid it. But it was with them in truth, and with what they implied, that she was so irritably anxious to be done when she first began to be reflective by the window. And it was to them she returned with vague but still intense consciousness when the rush of active reminiscence died away. That surely was the breakfast bell ringing, and with the dignified ancestral sound which was still so novel and attractive to Marcella's ear. Recalled to Mellor Park and its circumstances, she went thoughtfully downstairs, pondering a little on the shallow steps of the beautiful Jacobian staircase. Could she ever turn her back upon those holidays? Was she not rather, so to speak, just embarked upon their sequel or second volume? But let us go downstairs also. End of chapter 2